you're listening to Cinepunk. This episode, Harold and Maud, The Takeover Panel. Hello, I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson, and this edition of the Cinepunk podcast has been taken from our archive of live event recordings, this one dating back all the way to December 2015. Recorded in front of a live audience at the Queen's Film Theatre Belfast, better known to us as the QFT, immediately following a screening of cult film Harold and Maud, which was airing as part of the Takeover Films Love season of screenings, including the likes of Submarine, Gregory's Girl and Ameline. This is in fact one of our earliest shows, and I think the last one that we did without the Cinepunk name. Joining myself and Dr. Rachel Kelly are Connor Smith, who was then writing his Belfast film, and Aaron Hunter, then writing his study of the films of Hal Ashby. We've elected, as usual, to present the recording of the event as was, in as much as being possible, including most of the audible audience interactions. Hal Ashby's 1971 film Harold and Maud is a richly dark comedy about a young man called Harold, played by Bud Court, and his unlikely romance with a 79-year-old woman called Maud, played by Ruth Gordon. Filled with references to the counterculture movement and a catchy soundtrack by Cat Stevens, the film failed to find favour on initial release with critics carring from its bold sexuality and anti-establishment themes. In time, it would, however, find an audience, turn a profit, and is now a bona fide classic. Our conversation steers a path through some of the themes, and fair warning contains spoilers. Like the audience we recorded this in front of, I'd recommend you watch the film first, then stick on the episode after. Enjoy! Now, I I know, Aaron, you've seen this more than once before. Um, I've seen this more than once. This is your, what, second viewing, Connor and Rachel? Yeah. Your third viewing? (laughs) So, um, what did you make of the, the film generally then? It sort of gets um, better the more times you see it. It's such a strange thing that at first you kind of don't really know how to take it. And it gets kind of funnier and it gets more actually moving the more you see it. Um, I think the first time I saw it, I struggled a little bit with Maud, But uh, over kind of repeated viewings, her richness kind of comes out and you can't help be sort of taken along with her, really. I'm going to come back to that. You had problems with Maud. That's interesting. I, <laughs> I feel bad saying that. <laughs> no, 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 no. We are going to come back to that. Rachel, what do you make of it? Um, yeah, well, I think the first time I saw it, I sat down to, to watch it and I thought, this is going to be a hard sell. You know, I'm, I'm not sure I can really buy what they're going for here. And, I, you know, the first time you see it, I think you're just completely won over by it. Um, and, you know... I'm going to disagree with Connor slightly here. I mean, I think Ruth Gordon's actually luminous. I think she's what sells it to me. She's what actually makes the romance convincing because you can absolutely see why he would fall so passionately in love with her just in the strength of of that kind of, just the, the, the joy, the kind of, she's just like this kind of ball of incandescent joy. Um, and she just, she just brings the screen to life when when she's there I think which is what for me um, I mean I think to me the film works on a number of different levels I mean there's obviously I, in some ways I think that sort of the thematic reading of it is is maybe uh, more the heart of it necessarily than the romance but I don't know Aaron's probably going to completely disagree with me on that but um, yeah no I, I just it's it's a lovely film and yeah I agree with you Connor it, every time you watch it you get something new from it and it's just it's you know it sort of worms its way into your heart and kind of you know, just gets you there. <laughs> Aaron. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I have a long history with this film. It's the first Hal Ashby film I saw. I think I was 18, 
which I think is a pretty good age to see this movie. And uh, it's the first movie I think I ever saw that I rewound and uh, <laughs> and watched it again right away. Um, I can understand a little bit why some people might not warm to it on first viewing. I went through a kind of a phase in my 20s. I was cynical and cool. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, oh, it's so you know cheesy and superficial. And then I came back around again. It is like the repeated viewings, I think. And I, maybe this is the 40th time I've seen it or something. And I'm still <laughs> like, when he brings her the sunflowers on her birthday. And it's just still so unexpected to me because it's not one of the big moments in the film. And I go, oh, yeah. That part's so good, you know. So, yeah, I think this is what my third viewing in the last month. And you know, as Connor says, you do kind of get something different every time you you kind of watch this. Um, there, there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of warmth. There's a lot of quite dark stuff as well. I mean, it's a very rich film uh, and and quite unlike anything else I think I've ever seen. Um, uh, do you know what? I'm going to come back to this now, Connor. What's your issue with with more? <laughs> I feel like I shouldn't have said that at all. No, it's just when it was, I think maybe I wasn't paying attention properly when I first saw it, so I kind of thought she came off a bit uh, sort of manically peppy, uh, preppy, but then obviously the second time I saw it, I was like, oh, I was 100% wrong. Why did I even think that? But, you know, you know I think she is kind of manically preppy in a way that that's kind of... It, it strikes me that that's kind of the whole thing is that she's the one that's full of life and that kind of youthful vigor whereas he's the one that's acting like a, someone at the end of his life and, and she's the, that role reversal almost so I don't think that's a negative thing what you said No, I, I think you're right but also um, it's not sort of 100% manic like I've read different people online talking about how Maud is kind of like this 1970s version of the manic pixie dream girl which is pretty obvious, mostly because she's not that manic. The The film kind of gives her a lot of time to be quiet and not a lot happens for different little bits of the film. And I really like those um, silent portions, you know, when she's talking about her memories about her husband and, and Vienna and it kind of trails off and it's just sort of lays there and, and lets her kind of be a person for a bit and not just this kind of like, ah, you know, puppy kind of thing. Um, so the fact that it, it kind of has that balance where the humanity sort of comes out is what really kind of gets mod kind of under your skin for me and you sort of can't help but love her really. So I think um, kind of the big thing about the film is, is as I sort of said in the, in the preamble, is that May to December romance that doesn't hit you straight away. I mean, it's, it, it is a kind of slow burner, although it's also quite intense because this film takes place over the course of a week, um, which when I, I was in with the Takeover guys uh, about a month ago when we were chatting about this, and it was something that I kind of bypassed a lot of people by, was that this is a week-long relationship that, that kind of, it's her last week. I mean, it's so full. Um, so that that kind of, I wonder if we kind of talk about that that relationship, um, about the idea of the May to December thing, and, and about how that is a taboo that still exists, I think, within within cinema. Um, there's two mics there. Whoever wants to kind of leap in, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, well, as you, you know, I have a little bit of background in, in film and gender, so that's something that kind of really interests me about it and the fact that um, it is considered taboo and the fact that sort of it sits on a continuum alongside so many other kind of, 
you know, it's, it's, it, it's taboo in as much as, you know, it's sort of, oh, gosh, gosh isn't that shocking, you know, that it's a, a younger man. I know this one is a fairly extreme example, I know, but certainly if you put it on a continuum alongside the other kind of May-December romances, what I find quite remarkable, uh, remarkable about this one is the fact that it's told from the perspective of the, the man, um, and it's told in quite a sympathetic manner. I mean, if you look at others, you, you either see sort of, if it's told from a man's perspective, you quite often see a very predatory older woman who's kind of... Um, um, it's, it's kind of this kind of grotesque idea of the sort of postmenopausal woman preying on the younger man for her own ends. You don't think or she does that? Maud? Not at all, no. I think Maud's more of a cipher, actually, than, than sort of necessarily a completely fleshed out um, woman in this. I think she kind of exists to... to uh, like I say, I think it, it, she's almost it's, she's almost there to kind of even out a theme. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Maud. I think she's a great character. But um, just, just it seems to me that she's there to kind of discuss themes rather than um, necessarily the romances at the heart of it. I think, you know, I don't know how much, Aaron, you would agree with me on that. But. Um, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I think it's... This is one of the areas of the film that does sort of reward uh, re-watching because Maud is... <clears throat> Because Maud is the way that she is on screen, it's easier. To, it's easy to read her as one-dimensional or something like that, or as a cipher. I think, and because the film only gives her a few moments, the scene when she we, she's talking about her husband and the tattoo scene, where we get glimpses into like the pain of her past and how she has earned this kind of joy, you know? So I think that's there. Um, and it's just like a lot of the, the darkness or the depth of the film, it's almost hidden behind the zaniness mm -hmm. of it. Um, so I think that's what makes it, I have shown this to a lot of people and they have a hard time watching it because they don't buy mod. Or because even, you know, I've shown people this in the last five years who will sit there going, they're not going to sleep together, are they? Please, <laughs> please don't. Whatever happens, don't let that happen. And then one of my favorite scenes is the bubbles, because that's like his cigarette, you know? And he's just looking at you like, I did. We did. What are you going to do about it? I love it. But I've been with people who are viscerally just like, no. Um, but to go back to Maude, I think one thing about her is because it's this week, and she announces it, the first time, you know, and that slips past people too because it's in a voiceover. You know, you, you don't see her saying, it's a good time to go, 80. She says it. She's like trying for one last, you know, fling. Uh, and there's like some depth to that, I think, also. That she, I mean, she's very, the first time it's slow burning and you watch it and she's just this zany woman, but throughout she's winking and blowing him kisses and the sensual sculpture. She's like prepping him for this, you know. And she's, she's grooming him basically is what we're saying. <laughs> In we, the parlance she, of today. She does. I mean, yeah. it, it, I mean, she's the one that makes the first move on him. I mean, he, he looks quite confused and baffled that someone else should be entering into his space his, his whole ritualistic thing of, of kind of going to these funerals that's his thing and there's somebody else who clearly is doing the exact same thing and when she winks at him he kind of doesn't want to engage um so you know i think actually she is the predatory type in this one 
can't call her predatory though. I mean, I'm thinking predatory in terms of kind of Sunset Boulevard. I'm thinking predatory in terms of, well, maybe predatory is the wrong word for the graduate, but you know, it's it's that kind of that 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 kind of not entirely. You, you know, what, what, I mean, what, what, am I, what word am I looking for here? Oh, an audience question already. So early. We haven't got to that bit. Oh, no, don't apologise. Questions are good. It shows you're paying attention. From an older woman's perspective, if I may, um, I just think it's a sign of our times and how corruptive we've corrupted things have become about, you know, recent Jimmy Savile cases and all that kind of stuff and predatory and you're talking about that kind of aspect of it. This is my second viewing of the film and I had actually forgotten that they sort of got it together. I, my pervading memory of it was more the friendship between them and the affection and that was so beautiful and um, I think maybe we make too much of that, the sexual aspect of it perhaps. Um, I just wanted to say that really. You want us to stop talking about that, do you? Mm. No, 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 no. I can understand people's discomfort with it, and I, am, I remember now that when I did see it the first time, I was unsure if this was going to be okay or not. Um, but as I say, my, my memory of it was more the, the love and affection and what they give to each other, well, well, I, I being think uppermost. That's, that's quite interesting, actually. Yeah. You've forgotten that uh -huh. aspect that uh -huh. seems to sort of really throw a lot of, a lot of people, I think a lot of younger people, it seems to throw as well. Um, and certainly we're not, as a panel, casting any kind of moral judgment on it, oh, but no. that, that kind of uh, predatory language, yeah, it's over-egging it a little bit. Um, you know, maybe she's not. She's not full-on predator, and, and neither is he, but it's... I, I don't think she's really predatory at all. I don't think it has to be predatory for her to want what she wants in, in her life, whether it's a, this last friendship and whether that friendship allows for the, the sexual relationship that they have. But they seem to be part and parcel to me. It's just like a flowering, I mean, to use some of the film's imagery. And that is what I think makes it harder for people who do respond sort of negatively because it's not, it's not cast in these sort of typical Hollywood way it's it's more it's organic you know and and so that the the sexual relationship comes out of something that is healthy and wholesome and and the only thing that seems strange to people is the age you know yeah. no I, look i would completely agree with that reading i mean it is a very um naturalistic relationship it's it's one that that does seem to flow at its own pace nobody's really kind of egging anything on there's just this wonderful chemistry between the two and it is that it's that hollywood trope why this that's the bit that i kind of want to tease out now in kind of this conversation is is this idea that we have two people that basically as you rightly point out the only reason anyone is horrified by it is because there is such an age gap and it's not how we are um what's the word programmed to accept relationships connor you've been quiet for a bit <laughs> no i think uh Arne's right and um, the fact that the sort of physical kind of sexual aspect isn't, you know, it's actually easy to forget, um, as the audience member was saying. Um, if you're sort of not paying fully attention, you could actually miss it because it is this just kind of um, quick scene of them sort of in the bed together. Um, but I do think the fact that it is, um, uh, I think Maud's agency is something that people probably feel discomfort with um, more than the kind of 
actual sexual stuff because we're not really used to seeing um, women that age on screen even in our sort of modern enlightened time displaying that amount of um, sort of active desire. Um, usually they're kind of passive or are sort of victims in a way of different things of age, of um, other family members, of, of uh, people who are looking to take advantage of people that age. Um, but Maud's kind of fully formed personhood is, is something that maybe people aren't really used to. And um, which is interesting because it's, I mean, it's kind of like one of the main thematic points in it, the, the importance of agency in general. And that's sort of um, Harl's arc, really, that Maud kind of helps him along in her kind of cipher-like uh, almost way, is, is the, you know, realisation of, of how much uh, agency you have and how important it is to kind of actually, actually um, sort of follow through on that. You know, um, one of the differences in my head between Maud and the sort of manic pixie trope is that usually... Um, when characters are described in modern uh, romance or indie, indie sort of rom-coms as manic pixie, it's um, extremely sort of uh, flat characters that, that don't actually um, have any grit beneath the optimism. It's sort of like this light bubble kind of um, airy nothingness. You know, so it, it's hard to actually care if if they fix the you know depressed male sort of um, protagonist, which it inevitably inevitably is. But because Maud has this kind of life thing behind her, and you can kind of see glimpses of what's gone on, then uh, Harold becoming a person and being active isn't just like yeah, um, you know, random, I steal trees. <laughs> you know, it's it's actually like, no, you really have to be like this in order to survive in the world because um, look at all these gravesons of people who weren't active and just followed the rules and they're all dead. So it's it's got a kind of actual ethical impulse behind it in a way that kind of, um, you know, makes it kind of real, I think. Who let themselves be treated, that's what she says. So there's that passive... Um, we've already mentioned The Graduate in passing uh, and it strikes me that there is an awful lot of um, the, the two films in many ways that are quite tonally similar um, in terms of a sort of subversiveness and also well I mean The Graduate's only made what four years before this 67 wasn't it yes. um, and again it's dealing with a kind of May to December romance of sorts um, although obviously there are problems with that um, because obviously six years difference. Six years difference. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of part of my my major issue with the, the treatment of, of these sort of May to December romances in general. And that's why I actually kind of really like that the age difference is so difference is so pronounced in Harold and Maud because Hollywood's idea of May to December romance is quite often um, you know, a, a woman in her late thirties. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it's sort of going, in what sense, sorry, is that kind of, is there something inappropriate about this this relationship, you know? Um, and I think with her, I mean, yes, Maud actually, Maud looks quite young for 79. You know, she's not sort of grey-haired. She doesn't sort of adopt any of the tropes of the sort of the little old lady. But um, I mean, and when we talk about, I mean, for me, I don't know, this is possibly... Um, not everybody's experience of the film, but for me, the actual the sexual aspect of it didn't go far enough. I think if you're going to actually, I think it, it flows very naturally out of their blossoming love, their blossoming relationship. Um, and I know that part of that was sort of studio panic and going, well, there's nobody's going to go and see this if he's sleeping with his grandmother. But, you know, I think you either commit to tell that story um, and then you follow through with it. 
or else, you know, why why tell the story? So to me, the kind of the, the sort of delicate kind of moving away on let's let's blow bubbles instead. Oh. I love the bubbles. I think it's gorgeous, beautiful visual, but the kind of the delicacy of it, I think, is a little bit that disappointed me slightly about it, to be oh. honest, because by that stage I was going, Yes, come on, Harold and Maud, you're clearly in love. I do um, think the priest though kind of serves that function. And, yeah. and, you know, there's the psychologist who kind of does that bit about, you know, uh, that line about, you know, most people want to sleep with their mother, you're wanting to sleep with your grandmother. And then the priest mm. gets into quite glorious detail. As he, <laughs> and you can just watch him as he's imagining <laughs> the very physical and very naked acts that, that those two are clearly engaged in. Um, and I guess that that is a, because of the studio thing. And you presumably know more about the... Um, it was... Um yeah, the studio, and this was a Paramount film, like when Robert Evans was there and they were making The Godfather and, you know, really sort of pushing the Hollywood envelope at the time, but he did not want to have even them in bed. And for Ashby, it was important. Bud Court, who plays Harold, wanted to have a sex scene and he actually wanted it to be real. So he wanted to have sex with Ruth Gordon. <laughs> Seriously, he was in The Method. Um, at the other end of the spectrum was uh, Robert Evans and Paramount saying, we can't, we can only imply it. And, and Ashby said, I have to have at least a shot of them in bed next to each other so you can see their skin, which is a really interesting thing because that's what the priest kind of goes off on, that image of the skin. But he wanted to see that because Harold looks, I mean, like he doesn't even have any pores almost, is that sort of... <laughs> soap he's made out of. Um, but even after they'd shot it and, and the studio was really happy with it, uh, Evan said, but we're not putting that scene in. And Ashby's friend, Pablo Ferro, who did the, the titles for this and did a lot of editing for him, Ashby said, make the trailer and put them in bed in the trailer. And that was released. And then the studio felt compelled that they had to put it in the film now. So it almost didn't <clears throat> even that get into it at all. Oh, interestingly, they're not they are there was quite a distance between the two of them in bed so presumably that's still part of that that taboo that they didn't want to have them kind of i mean they're further apart than we are yeah you know yeah i kind of like that too because because <laughs> she's sort of well I mean, we've seen it all but uh <clears throat> there's something lived in about it even that scene the way the bedclothes are and the way she's lying and he's sitting up in the sunshine behind them it, it looks like it's not their first time almost except there's that I think I've seen the light song is playing and it's the glorious moment, but um, it fits the sort of, you know, design of her whole place mm. somehow, that big bed. Uh, since we've mentioned the song, um, the Cat Stevens soundtrack, I think is quite important to the film. Um, and again, it's one of those things that I think draws parallels down to The Graduate because with that, they had the Simon and Garfunkel thing where there's a lot of, uh, catalog material from them that's used in them like one or two new songs and Cat Stevens only provided two new songs for this but it draws heavily on his oeuvre um, uh, any thoughts on on kind of that on, on well actually Aaron, I know you've got plenty of thoughts on, on sort of sound and Hal Ashby's films and, and sort of the music generally but and how it's used in this film in particular anyone want to kind of talk about that no you don't do sound don't do sound <laughs> Did you like the Cat Stevens music? It's good. Does anybody have any, like, Cat Stevens is weird now, hang-ups and all? No? Um, At what point did he... Does anyone, I can't even remember now if I had this in my notes from before, but, I mean, obviously, 
We're all, I think, are we all aware who Cat Stevens is? Yes, anyone not? No, okay. Well, he's slightly taboo because, okay, so um, to explain that thought, there's this process where Cat Stevens converted to Islam uh, and then he, for a period, he was quite radical in sort of his, the comments that he was making about uh, his Islamic faith and how that was then being reported in the media. And there are certain factions of people who then find that quite difficult to address with, you know, when he changed his name to Yusuf Islam um, and that kind of change. And he moved away from the music business for a long time and he's only kind of come back into it in the it last decade. It was particularly decade. around the Sa Salman Rushdie stuff. So he sort of lended, and he says he's been misquoted, but at the time, whenever that was in 1989, he sort of agreed with the Iranian government's position on Salman Rushdie's blasphemy. And so it was hard, it was hard for me at the time because I'd seen this film eight months before that or something. <clears throat> um, because if you want to sing out, sing out. Except if you're singing out the satanic verses sort of thing. Um, he has since mellowed. He goes to the Harold and Maude um, appreciation things and sings the songs. He stopped singing Cat Stevens songs for a long time in the 80s and 90s. Um, but he's sort of embraced it yeah, more now. Have. But I mean, it's, it's one of those things is that film is sort of, um, there's something slightly organic about watching films and over time our reading of them changes. So how we read something in the 1960s, how they were reading stuff in the 1960s is not how they're reading it in the 70s. It's not how maybe we're reading it now. I mean, someone, we've already had Jimmy Savile mentioned, which means that there's an entire part of 70s and 80s culture that's being reevaluated by people and a whole area of stuff that we're not allowed to talk about. So bearing in mind Cat Stevens's sort of history uh, and kind of the, um, I would argue, in light of some of sort of the anti-Islamic viewpoints that are expressed by certain portions of social media right now, you know, there are people for whom this film would actually be a no-go area um, and, and would have been, as you said in the past, that that was problematic. I think... <clears throat> I don't really want to get down this, yeah, this too much. Yeah, I but. just think for a little while, it was a sort of, you know, whenever you find out someone that you once loved, you have a hard time loving anymore. You're not culturally allowed to love that person because they did this one thing. Then you have this sort of cognitive dissonance where you're like, I love Harold and Maude and I want to sing out, and but Cat Stevens, But you even, know. even then, Cat Stevens was still kind of an alternative figure. He wasn't, um, may not have embraced that religious change about him at that point, but he was kind of cultural, wasn't he? It's a countercultural yeah, position. Yeah, sure, of course. Yeah. And it's, it's that kind of... Um, I don't know how much Simon Garfunkel are countercultural uh, for The Graduate, but there is that with, with Cat Stevens. It seems rather appropriate to the rest of the film, that kind of um, subversiveness. Yeah, I agree. You agree? Okay. Yeah. Zeitgeistiness, though. Zeitgeistiness? Yeah. That's the word I just made up. No, no, zeitgeist <laughs> is a word. <laughs> the enus, I think so. Yeah. Oh, it just made me think because I mean I know I've been I've been um, I've been reading a lot about sort of new Hollywood cinema that kind of era of, of Hollywood recently, um, and I came across this uh, quote by uh, Roger Ebert where he talks about um, all of a sudden around you know the, the birth of new Hollywood cinema you get um, you have these sort of very kind of youth culture oriented musicians being sort of co-opted onto the soundtrack so 
uh, in all of the films from that period, you see these very soulful, he calls, I think he calls it the obligatory bus soundtrack shot or something like that. We have them staring soulfully out the, the window of the bus while the, you know, the, the young hip uh, song plays in the background. He says, you know, I hope this finishes soon because otherwise I'm going to lose my mind. And then sort of 30 years later, he goes, well, no, that didn't happen. So I was, I was watching that. And I mean, it is this, if you watch any sort of new Hollywood uh, film, you start going, tee hee 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 there it is again, that must be really annoying, Roger Ebert. But anyway, <laughs> that was my entire contribution to the soundtrack of Harold and Maud. I don't notice music normally in films. Okay, so with, with this, well, bearing in mind that, with, with this film, there's a point where Maud is singing for Harold, mm. okay, and she starts sitting at the piano, and she's playing that song, and she's singing, and then she gets up and starts dancing around the room, and the music keeps on playing, so Hal Ashby's quite good at playing with diegetic and non-diegetic music, so that's music that's happening in the scene, of the scene, and stuff that's soundtrack and there's points where that stuff segues then like the very finale of the film where Harold starts picking out on the banjo and then it moves into Cat Stevens playing the music so there's a kind of elision somewhere along the line I wonder I'm going to take this a bit further um, with that use of music it becomes hard to work out what's diegetic and what's not diegetic I also kind of wonder then what's real and what's not real within the film so how much of this film is actually happening and how much of it's in Harold's head well, you see, that's where I kind of get back to the idea that, well, I, in fact, you know, Maud, I, I do think of, you, you can read her as, as sort, of, sort of living, breathing, lovely, sort of very life-affirming character in Harold's life. You can also read her as representative of the themes that the, the screenwriter and the director are trying to kind of bring out with the film. And I mean, I think you can read Harold in exactly the same way. Anyway, it's just that we happen to be viewing it from his point of view. So we have more of a sense of, of Harold um, as being kind of this, this kind of more three-dimensional person. Um, but yeah, I mean, I th a lot of what's going on with Maud is this kind of evocation of, you know, life versus death, youth versus um, age, um, culture versus nature, all sorts of things like that. So in terms of what's actually going on in Harold's head, well, you, you know, it's very <laughs> from the very beginning, we're being asked to, to work out what's real and what's going on in Harold's head because, you know, the very opening shot, it's a lovely long take of him actually hanging himself. Um, and we're not given any clues as to how he's managed to fake that. It's a very convincing hanging scene, but obviously his mother is well and truly sort of well versed in Harold's extraordinarily realistic suicide, uh, mock suicide attempts. So, yeah, I mean, that's where I come back to this idea that the film, you know, you, almost to me, the thematic elements of the film um, are more important, no, not more important, but at least as important as the actual central romance. I think the romance kind of exists in a lot of ways to kind of discuss those those kind of thematic elements. Um, so to a certain extent, what's real and what's not real is kind of beside the point in some ways. Connor? Does that make sense? Yeah, sorry. No, it's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, there's something slightly furry godmother-esque about Maud. You know, just when the, the boy has sort of learnt the thing he's supposed to learn, she dies, oh, vanishes. <laughs> and, you know, she never, like, meets really any of the people from his sort of little social world. Um, there is a sense in which, you know, almost she, in the from the perspective of the people around him, like, she might have not even really existed at all. You know, he, was, he just had this really weird wake where he's behaving differently and now he's, you know, got this shaggy hair and he's blowing bubbles all the time. Um, but I think uh, this point you made about sort of the, the pull in the film between the themes, the political, social stuff, and actually the romance um, is, is something that is really sort of well-balanced in a way that... I was um, watching Ashby's Coming Home the other day, the Vietnam film you made, um, and that's the, the exact same thing struck me, is how much 
all the kind of political consciousness in it is actually um, kind of comes up fairly organically through the actual characters sort of interactions and through the kind of conversations that they have that feel like real conversations. You know, um, coming home is sort of, it's very similar obviously to Born on the Fourth of July. It's based on the same kind of memoir and it's sort of overshadowed in people's imagination by Fourth of July. But my memory of Fourth of July is being a very shouty, like, give me the Oscar. <laughs> like, ah, <laughs> Vietnam. But actually in, in coming home, it's, it's more kind of um, sort of relationships you can actually believe you know it's people caught in these thematic stuff rather than kind of talking it which is a bit weird because actually in Harold and Maud Maud does a lot of like you said talking you know oh live life um, but, but it's really kind of because of the the sort of very delicate screenplay and Ruth Gordon's really kind of believable performance that it doesn't feel like a total sort of mouthpiece I think do you think Ruth Gordon is, and um, that performance is what really kind of lifts, no, no, that's that's unfair because I, I think, what 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 am I trying to say here? It's, you know, I think there would be a danger for, for Maud to, and, uh, and, and Harold as well, actually. I think both of the performances are absolutely remarkable performances. I think there might be um, a tendency for, for one or both of them to kind of slide into, not caricature, but sort of... Um, not quite cipher, but kind of, you know, sort of avatars of a theme. Well, they, are, they, are, they certainly give slightly more realistic performances than a lot of the, the supporting cast who, well, do, yeah, but who, who are there yeah. as kind of cartoon characters yeah, a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah, they're, they're very much sort of the, the comedy underpinning of it. But I think both of those performances give the depth to those characters. They're absolutely incredible performances, both of them. Um, just, yeah. Aaron, do you have something you want to say now? Um... I thought you looked like you had something to say. <laughs> uh, I just think it's an interesting thing to uh, film to think about in terms of the sort of, maybe not what's real or unreal, but in its of its time, you know, the early 70s, that it's playing with classical Hollywood traditions and rules. So there's like breaking the fourth wall, you know. All of his suicides pretty much, maybe not all of them, but the the self-immolation, you know, the gunshot to the head, all of these are, how did he do that? You know, it's, they're very Hollywood staged things. And if you think too much about it, then they can't even be sort of real or something. And, and the first suicide and the last suicide, I think, are, are fake suicides are interesting because those are the sort of believable ones. And the last one's totally impossible. I mean how does he get out of the car? You know, this is not worth thinking about because you'll never come to an answer. But but it's still up to the very end, I think, playing this kind of game. And the music does this too, this sort of elision between the diegetic and extra diegetic. And part of that, I think, is is resonating with these themes about like the authentic life and authenticity and what does it mean to live and and what is fake and what is real in reality and and that's part of what again to go back to what you said at the beginning watching it over and over again you know watching it again you start to tease out the connections between the plot and the themes and the actual style of the film and how they all sort of comment on each other and work with each other. It, it's a weird film for me. I, like, I still remember watching it the first time and why do I feel so good? She just killed herself, uh, the car, and I, I wanna, like, it 
plays around on some like strange in some strange way and different levels. She gives you permission to to enjoy it in the end because she does say, you know, you know, he says, I love you and, and just that's nice. Go and love some more. And and so that's kind of what we're told to do. Now I'm aware kind of we're gonna haste towards our exit. So questions, who's got the roving mic? Uh anyway, a couple over that side. Hello. Hello. Well I feel whenever he gave her the badge with Harold Loves Maud on it, that was sort of you know, he was falling in love with her because they felt like kindred spirits and free spirits and they could be friendly and just live there, enjoy their life and have fun. And with Maud throwing it away, she was realising in the real world it was never going to be a relationship or anything. But part of her was just bringing that back, like it makes her feel like a, a young woman. And we all sort of feel that as a mature person here, you know, at times I feel like a younger woman, but I know I'm getting older, <laughs> but that's life. And then when, when he was just leaving the car over the cliff, I felt that was his, that was just closing that door for him on that chapter. Although he was going off, but he was never going to forget Maud. But he was leaving that place where he knew where she was type of thing. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair enough reading. Mm. Um, the hearse, like, yeah. say bye to that. Yeah. The mm-hmm. um, so there's someone behind you as well, was there? I just want to ask about that <laughs> as well. And, you know, was it necessary for Maud to have been in a concentration camp to be Maud? In other words, do you have to have been to a very extreme situation before you can find the kind of joy de vivre that she has? Because I actually felt that was a kind of, oh, uh, sort of not a bum note, but I felt something slightly not really that, not necessary for her to have suffered to that extreme to be such a wonderful character. I think that again is, is where I kind of go back to the idea of Maud being more of a cipher, more like sort of a hitting all of the, the sort of thematic points to kind of make the, the to, to kind of, pick up on the themes that they're wanting to explore I I would actually probably have to agree with you on that it was almost as though we have to have a reason for her to to be who she is she can't you, you know that we have to kind of understand there's light and dark there and again all these thematic elements coming coming through again um I don't feel like I need to understand that the pain in Maud's past um to, to kind of accept the the joy that she has found in in yeah yeah because i would have personally yeah i personally would have uh, would have accepted the whole sort of she's lost her husband as a part of that that's that's part of her narrative that's part of her backstory that's part of the richness of of her life i i would i don't know about how the the guys would would feel about that but i personally would would agree with you on that Um, point yeah i know from again from chatting to the guys when we did the takeover thing a while ago um it actually was a little detail that bypassed a lot of people. There's an awful lot of people see this film and that that's a fleeting shot. And there's also, the other thing to remember now is there's a generation who aren't really aware of the concentration camps in the same way, are not aware of that little detail. I mean, that, that apparently is something that you only got if you were part of the Auschwitz series of camps. You didn't get it unless you were, if you were in one of the other ones. Um, so there is, that, that, that's a coding, and it's a coding that comes in 1971, which is only 25 years at the end, after the end of the war. There's a different resonance for the people who are making that film, for the people who are in that film, than there is for us in 2015. You know, so <laughs> I have to check. Um, I'm aware we've kind of got to wrap this up in a couple of minutes. So, uh, yeah. 
we still got 10 minutes? All right, okay. So. Sorry, there's just one question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I would just like to challenge the, uh, you're linking it with the graduate because I don't, I think it's a coincidence that yes, it's a, a, a younger man with a slightly older woman in that context and this is a much older. But the, I think the difference in the graduate is that she really is predatory and she has her own motivations in it and she doesn't give him anything. Whereas in this one, I, I really believe that that. She, Maud transforms his life and we see him at first as a very uh, damaged almost catatonic young man and I think the first time we ever see him smile is when he's with her and he has dimples it turns out he has dimples and he bring, he, she brings him joy and, and uh, a whole new approach to life and at the end of it that he goes away playing music um, she, she's done something wonderful so I, I just, I, I'm just challenging the link. Um, well, I guess it was me that kind of drawed that out, was it? Um... Well, I think, I mean, I think the link is really, I mean it is to do with, with kind of the the nature of the, the sort of the, the May to December romance and the, the sort of the boundary pushing nature of both narratives and the fact that they're kind of using the May to December uh, romance as the boundary pushing but yeah I mean that's that's kind of what my what I was sort of trying to, to say at the beginning is that when usually when we're given I mean I just I see there's kind of there's, there's kind of two ways of looking at the May of December romance and quite often you get kind of the melodrama which is from the woman's perspective where it looks at what you know what is missing in this poor older woman's life that she must go and seek you know shit the career hasn't made her happy you know uh, financial security hasn't made her happy what she really needs is the love of a good younger man to show her just what she's missing as a woman and that to me is one sort of huge um, sort of subsection of the May of December romance from the, the older woman's perspective you see it from the male perspective quite often often, not always, but quite often you're dealing with this kind of either, well quite, you know, the, the sort of the, the slightly predatory older woman. Um, and sometimes that's a, you know, go bro, you got you got that really hot older woman. And sometimes it is very much about sort of the, the, the younger man being preyed upon by an older woman. And to me, that's what's quite remarkable about Harold and Maud. Um, is the fact that we're we're seeing it from the man's point of view, but it is actually being presented as something rather wonderful in his life. Um, it's not that he, she's. I, I don't find Maud predatory at all. I think she's certainly um, very sort of. Um, proactive. proactive, yes, sexually very aware, um, very comfortable with who she is and what she wants. Um, and yes, I mean, she has that freedom to desire Harold um, on a completely, no, as equals, really. Um, and they're, they're sort of given that opportunity, which I, I mean, for me, that is what made me really root for it and go, come on, Harold and Maud. And that's why I did want to see that kind of move into the, you know, the, what to me feels like a very natural progression of their relationship. Um, and I sort of felt like the the way it was being, you know, the, the sort of the tiptoeing around that the studio kind of imposed upon it actually sold it short. Um, and yeah, and again, I... I maybe in a minority in that but but in any case I think the link with the graduate exists just in terms of that kind of you know let's push the boundaries and see how far we can push you know oh, taboo I think it goes further than that I mean first of all yeah there's a six year difference in, in real terms between Anne Bancroft and Dustin Hoffman in the fiction of the film there's meant to be like a 20-30 year difference between them so part of the thing that we haven't really explored and we don't have time to is, is in the way Hollywood will use actors of sort of differing ages to what they're portraying the difference between that and Harold and Maud is that Bug Court was 23. 
and Ruth Gordon was 79. So that 53 year age gap is, is very genuine. It's much more representative of that. Um, so that is a difference between that and the graduate, but there is something stylistically between the graduate and this and the kind of independency sort of vibe. There's something slightly, art, I mean, they're basically art housey sort of films now. Um, I think it's, it's kind of how you kind of feel for them. They're not, and obviously times have changed and cinema has changed, but that's kind of looking at them now. I think that that, that use of kind of that countercultural folky music as well is something that kind of means that you look at them with sort of comparison. Um, and that made a December romance. And yes, you know, you're quite right that, that Anne Bancroft's character is far more obviously predatory, you know, when Dustin Hoffman feels, are you trying to seduce me? It's like, well, yeah, she doesn't say it, you know, yeah. Um, but I mean, also he is someone who goes on a journey in, in The Graduate, you know, he through that experience that he has with her, it comes to a new understanding of himself and relationships. And whilst at the end of that film, he may not be happy in the way that um, Harold ends up seemingly kind of content with himself after having gone through his anguish, we're kind of left hanging with The Graduate. Um, but there is something similar there, and, and just because they're not kind of identical plots. Um, oh, no, no, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, they're both interesting films and both <laughs> great in their own way. I think The Graduate plays more into this sort of standard thing that you're talking about because also Mrs. Robinson, the film has to turn her into a monster eventually, so she gets punished. I mean... Maud gets punished in a way too because the script kills her. But as a person within that world, she doesn't get punished the way that Mrs. Robinson does. I Maud, think Maud's in control though, isn't she? Yeah, I mean it's very different. I, but I just they do kill her off. But uh, she's she's allowed to like be in control of her life through the end and enjoy it. And Harold's allowed to come away from it, you know, not with that. Mrs. Robinson is an evil woman now at the very the last scene when she's rah, 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 when he's up banging on the glass, you know, and she's turned into something she different. That same squeamishness about showing the, the, the sexual nature of the relationship between Mrs. Robinson and um oh my god, I've forgotten his name. But anyway, yeah. Benjamin. Yes, thank you, Benjamin. Um whereas you know, there is, and I know there's an age. I know the age difference is more pronounced in Harold and Maud, but there is that squeamishness about being able to show that relationship. And to me, you know, there is that sense of, well, it's all right if she's a predator, but you know, not if not if she's sort of a woman who has sort of her own kind of is being allowed to do this on an equitable term. Which, yeah, I mean, I have. As, you know, this is a conversation we're going to have to continue outside in the bar um, because we are out of time. Uh, so thank you once again to KFT and to Takeover for having us all here. Thank you to my panellists and thank you for listening and contributing. There is, of course, much more that could be said about Harold and Maud, and we may revisit it in a future episode. Feel free to share your own thoughts with us across social media. You'll find us on Twitter and Facebook as CinePunked and Instagram as CinePunktFilm. We're grateful to the KFT and TakeOver for inviting us to take part in their love season back in 2015. And a special shout out for assistance from then employees, uh, Marianne Campbell and Jenny Graham, as well as the rest of the TakeOver team. TakeOver ran for over a decade, offering programming aimed at the under-30s and rebranded in late 2019 as Lumi. You can find out more information about them via Facebook and the QFT websites. 
of our special guests for this show, Aaron Hunter has since completed his study of Hal Ashby. His book, Authoring Hal Ashby, The Myth of the New Hollywood Auteur, was published by Bloomsbury Academic in 2016 and is available in hardback paperback and ebook editions. Connor Smith no longer blogs as Belfast Film, although he still writes under his own name and regularly posts on Medium. The sound was recorded and engineered and given a brand new mix for 2020 by Ben Simpson. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe via your favourite provider and you'll find the CinePunk podcast on most platforms as well as via our website www.cinepunk.com. Until the next time, 